Sorry, I'm going to start that again. That was a dumb line. One take work. Welcome. You are listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. Welcome to the Park Avenue Synagogue Parsha podcast. It is nice to be back after a couple of weeks off. I'm here again with Rabbi Ethan Linden, director of Camper Ma in the Berkshires. Uh, Rabbi Linden, how are you? I am doing great. It is so nice to be able to take some time off in the middle of the summer, which is not my normal experience. Yeah, this is probably the most uh, relaxed during the summer months you've been in a long time. Extremely relaxed, though I will tell you that I would gladly give away every ounce of my, my relaxation to uh, get camp back for next summer. I am sure that that is true, and I'm sure that I know it is true of many of the campers that we have at Park Avenue Synagogue as well. So, Rabbi, I thought that in addition to talking about Parshat Re'eh, I wanted to ask you some questions in a broader sense about Devarim and our world, because the book of Deuteronomy, as, as Chancellor Eisen from, or former Chancellor, Chancellor Emeritus Eisen, has written about that Deuteronomy is really setting up an idealized society. If the first four books of the Torah are a record of what has happened or the telling of our people's narrative, the last book, Devarim, is about looking forward. And when you get into the land, this is what the world that you are going to inhabit should look like. And setting up an ideal world like that. And it occurs to me that part of your project and mine, Ethan, whether it's in a synagogue or in a camp, is in many ways also trying to create a vision of an ideal world that we hope that our campers, our congregants will inhabit and maybe take something from. And I know that you've actually written about this, and so I want to ask you a little bit about your thoughts on what it is that you're doing in the camp setting um, as, as creating this world. Thanks. Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating question, and I, I love the way of thinking about Deuteronomy as a book that you laid out, right, as this book that is really looking forward in a way that, that the other four books of the Torah are, are not. And, and I think a lot about this question of what does it mean to build a temporary society, which is what we, of course, do at camp, right? And I think in this way, Ethan, our jobs are a little different, right? Synagogues are building something that sustains itself over many, many months and years. Right. Camp is this weirdly punctuated experience. I was actually in a, I was just going to call it a bubble, but I think that has taken on a whole new meaning now in the world that we're living in. Um, but it is funny that at camp, we often talk about the camp bubble, um, which is very different, by the way, than the NBA bubble. Uh, there's a lot fewer tall people in our bubble. But I, I think the question that I ask myself a lot is, what does it mean to build a society which is both temporary, 
but also aims to have a lasting impact on the people who experience it. Now, what I would ask you is, do you think about that on like a service to service basis? Do you think of your Saturday morning service as a kind of temporary moment? Or do you think of it as more of an arc that you're trying to create over the course of a, a month, a year, two years, 10 years? What's the, the time frame that you're thinking about? Well, look, we're rabbis, so clearly the answer is gonna be both. <laughs> But no, it's a good point. I think I think that we're thinking long-term arc. What does our synagogue community look like? But we're also thinking within each service, what kind of a community are we creating? What kind of a community are we building towards? And, and, and what do we need to do within even just the couple of hours that we have you on a Saturday morning? What are the values that we're going to highlight? What are the ways that we're going to try to bring people together? But you're right. And then how can we create a, a, a link from this Saturday to next Saturday to next Saturday to some other event that the synagogue is going to do to, to really build out the community. That link that you are talking about, which the education folks call transfer, right? What they talk about in the education literature is, can we get kids to transfer what they are learning in a school setting out into the world? That's something that we think about a lot at camp as well. And if you look at some of the founding documents of Ramah, there's a great uh, little booklet called Vision of the Heart, where the, the discussion is about why was Ramah founded back in 1947? What is it that they were trying to do? And it's very clear that what they were trying to do was create what the sociologist and theologian Peter Berger would call a plausibility structure, right? How do we create a small world onto itself that can make manifest the type of Jewishly serious communities that the founders of Ramah wanted to see, not just in the summer, but around the country, in the world as well. And it was very much a response to the Holocaust. It was very much a response to their sense that something was lost in the mass immigration project that had brought so many Jews to the United States, and that some sense of the thickness of the community, of the plausibility of a rich and observant Jewish community had been lost, and camp was a way to give people a glimpse of that, such that they would want to take that away and bring it into their lives outside of camp as well. That is fascinating, and I want to get to specifically what kind of plausibility structure camp is or a synagogue is, but I also want to round out in, in history, what's interesting too is that that's a kind of exactly the same project of the Torah and then of the rabbis. The Mishkan, the, the traveling um, place of sanctity that, that the Israelites brought them in the desert is said to be a microcosm of the cosmos, right? The world writ small in this one area for the Israelites to um, interact with as a kind of reaction perhaps to slavery in Egypt. And then as a reaction to the destruction of the temple, the rabbis create these small microcosms of the tradition and of what the temple was and of in synagogues and Abate Knesset and Abate Midrash, right? It's it's a it's a tactic that we've we've known for a long time to try to preserve something important in these smaller scale plausibility structures, which we then hope transfer back into the larger world. And I think it is an open question for both of us, for both synagogues and camps, 
while we create these amazing communities, which while they are operating are impactful and inspiring, how much impact can those communities have once people step outside of our doors, once they leave our boundaries, once they leave the temporary building that we have made for them, you know, are we able to see some sort of impact in the world that would, you know, affect the way that people are living their, their daily lives? Do you, do you feel like you get to see those impacts? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. And yes, however, one thing that I am unclear on is how intentional we are about it. Now this, you know, you, we might get, uh, Mitch Cohen and, and Elliot Cosgrove uh, angry at us right now for sharing these uh, state secrets, but it's definitely clear that we make an impact in people's lives for the good and unfortunately sometimes for the bad. But it's unclear if we are doing it intentionally or not. So, so when a college kid comes back and says, you know, hey, I, I joined Hillel, or I eat in the kosher dining hall, or I, I go to services now, or it's unclear if that person is doing it as an extension of what we wanted them to do when they were here, or if whatever we're doing, they just, they kind of got the pixie dust on them somehow, and they like it, and the kids sitting next to them who had the exact same experiences didn't, and so they didn't like it. And, and are we being intentional, or are we just kind of creating enough, enough experiences so that hopefully something somewhere will be meaningful? Yeah, and I think that is a great point. And I think in camp, some ways, this is even more of an open question because there is a sense in which camp works because of what camp is, right? We uh, have the advantage of bringing all these kids together. They are not with their parents. There is an intensity to the camp experience that really can't be replicated. There's a lot of near-peer interaction happening for kids and staff, which is really impactful. In many ways, that is the true magic of the camp experience. It's that near-peer interaction that kids mostly don't have. If you think about most kids, when they're interacting with authority figures, it's either people who are their parents or their parents' age. And all of a sudden, they're interacting with people who are 18, 19, 20, and are just sort of on the cusp of being uh, adults in many ways, and kids respond to that so powerfully. And because we have all of that, there's a success that is almost inherent in the model. But the question is, are we able to translate what's going on inside of the camp environment, that magic that we make, are we able to translate that into some sort of intentional educational experience that will last beyond the moment when they sobbing get on the bus to go home. You know, when I think about this in the following way, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, I think we are very good at convincing kids to love camp. Are we equally good at convincing kids to love Judaism and the Jewish people and the state of Israel and all of the kind of educational goals that we have? And if the answer to that second set of questions is we're not sure, then we probably have to be more thoughtful about the community that we are building. I want to drill down on a specific because one of the things that I think camp does very well, and, and I want to know what your reaction to this is, that, I, that I, I'm always envious of because in a synagogue it's different, which is Shabbat. At camp, 
you, we, in all the years I worked at camp, mostly for you, uh, we, we were able to make, I felt like kids love Shabbat because we were in charge of the programming. So Shabbat was the day where the food was the best. Shabbat was the day where the rules were the loosest. Shabbat was the day when, you know, yeah, there's, there's a lot of davening, but then there's just sports and free time and lake and whatever you want. And of course, someone's going to love Shabbat because we've engineered the week and the rule structure at camp to make Shabbat more fun. So I guess a question I have is now that you've been in this for a, a, a while, do you find that that translates into a love of Shabbat when they get out of the camp situation? Uh, you know, does it, does it hold, does it transfer? You're asking a great question and I, I don't have a good answer. There's no question that when we do the follow-up research on the graduates of Ramah camps, not just our camp, but other camps, that what we find over and over again is increased interest in Shabbat, increased connection to the state of Israel, increased interest in Jewish ritual and things like that over and above, you know, people uh, in relevant age groups and, and, and those types of things. And I think there's, there's, there's no question that um, what we are doing is working. I sometimes think, Ethan, though, that your question of do we know why it's working and have we thought deeply about how to make it work more, I think those are the, the tougher questions. You know, one of the things that happens in this week's Parsha is a review of the holiday cycle, uh, which we've already seen a couple of times, but that gives me a jumping off point to say that I think of camp in many ways as a sukkah, right? A kind of temporary structure that we build and there's all this amazing stuff that happens in the sukkah, all of these amazing ideas that get bound up in the sukkah, much like the sukkah of the holiday of Sukkot, where there's all these amazing ideas and thoughts and meals that happen and, and fellowship and community that gets built. And then the sukkah goes away. And the question is, do we take any of that with us into the next weeks and months of the calendar? And I have the same question at camp, right? We build this sukkah and we bring all of these people into it, but it is very much a temporary structure. And then we put it away. And I wonder to myself always, you know, did we do enough to convince people that what's happening in this sukkah could be happening in their lives outside of the sukkah if they choose to bring these values and ideas and observances into those, into those other days? And, you know, on my good days, I think we're, we're having some success. And on other days, I feel like we're not doing nearly enough. Well, I wonder... And I have some thoughts on this from the synagogue side. What are some of the secret ingredients on the days when you think you're doing it? What are some of the, the either methods or um, timelines or, or, or structures that you put in place to help ensure that what happens at camp can transfer to the rest of their lives? Right. I mean, I think a huge part of it is hiring the right people right? Because so much of the success of camp is the informal moments of education, the, the nooks and crannies into which we hope Jewish values and texts and traditions and stories are being poured. And the people doing that pouring are 18, 19, and 20-year-old staff members, many of whom grew up at camp, but some did not. And we hope that the reason that they come, or at least one of the reasons that they come and be a part of our community is because they want to give 
some sense of the importance of Judaism in their lives to their campers. And I think when we're at our best, we have done a good job of hiring and then training and then supporting those staff members so that they can do more than just make sure kids get from place to place. They can do more than just fulfill that first or second level of the, the hierarchy of needs, right? Making sure that we do more than just making sure kids, you know, eat enough and, and put on sunscreen and all of that stuff that's really important. But when we're at our best, we are hiring the right people. We are giving them the right support and training. And then we are letting them be creative and thoughtful and innovative in ways that we couldn't have imagined, but that will have a huge impact on the kids that they're working with. I agree. And I, I think that's, really true. And speaking as someone who you've hired, I think you're right. It's all about that. Um, <laughs> it doesn't always work out, of course. <laughs> of course, of course. There, there's, there are mistakes. This is also true, I think, in the synagogue world. But I want to highlight a, a, an issue that I think I, I have or I'm seeing in the way that we go about this and pointing out a failing of, of one of the modes of leadership that we have relied on in both the camp and the synagogue world for so long, which which Ethan, you're talking a little bit about here, but but not entirely, and that is this, the idea of sort of the performative Judaism aspect of this, right? That how do you get people to want to live Jewish lives? Well, you just get really special, wonderful people to be up in front of them, giving sermons or 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 singing the prayers, and and if everyone hears Cantor Schwartz sing the prayers, they will want to learn to sing the prayers just like Cantor Schwartz because he's the most amazing singer, which he is, the prayer that we've ever seen. And, and I think to some extent that you can correct me, but that's a little true or has been true in the camp world also, right? Well, why, why do I want to be a, an observant or an engaged Jew? Well, because my counselor, who I think is the coolest person who's ever lived, is an observant and engaged Jew. And so I'm going to kind of learn through this performative osmosis of the way to behave. And, and I think that that way of bringing people into our tradition relied on a lot of the tools and building blocks of a Jewish life to be there already in a way that they maybe have been in past generations, just in the ether, the language, the sort of background knowledge that just were and were there passed down by grandparents or parents or, or whatever it is. And as we are in a world where not every Jew has those basic fundamentals of practice, I think it is harder or the barriers are greater for them to simply see an engaging Jew being a Jew and then want to live that way as well, right? They, they can see it and they just still don't know how to how to get from point A to point B. And I think that's something that I, I say with all humility is very true in the synagogue world. And we're, we're working on how to build fundamentals and how to um, bring people along um, with us and provide paths for people's, for, for everyone's growth. And I wonder if the similar shift um, or, or concern is happening in the camp. So that's a really interesting question, Ethan. I think that, you know, at least at, at Ramah, we do tend to attract a, a family that is a little bit more engaged maybe uh, than, than the average family. Um, you know, we ask the question at the end of every summer, we, we send out a parent survey. And one of the questions we ask is, you know, how, how active are you Jewishly outside of camp? And, and the majority of our families are pretty active outside of camp. 
you know, in some ways, camp has a, a slightly different question, which is how do we take those families that do tend to be the more engaged families in their synagogues, and how do we give them something that's a little more than what they already have, right? How do we build on the foundation that they have? And by the way, I would say, how do we do that while still acknowledging the fact that we have a lot of folks that show up at camp who, who don't really come from those backgrounds, who don't have Hebrew language, who don't have the experience of having uh, gone to shul on a regular basis. And I think one of the tensions that we feel and one of the things that we are working on in our own development as an institution is how to make sure that each camper has an arc that they can go through that feels right for them and their family, right? How do we give campers the opportunity to grow Jewishly starting from the place where they are, right? There's this famous moment in, in the book of Genesis where Hagar and Ishmael are wandering around in the desert and, and Hagar uh, puts Ishmael underneath this bush because she thinks he's going to die. And at some point, you know, the, the angel says to her, don't worry, God is going to meet Ishmael where he is. And, and that's such a beautiful moment. And I think about that a lot as an educator. How do we meet our campers and for that matter, our staff where they are so that we can give them a growth trajectory that makes sense for them as Jews, and that makes sense for our community so that we can be stronger going forward. And I think that's a really hard thing to do well. That's especially true when what we're doing is fundamentally temporary. But I think it's probably something I would imagine that you as a synagogue rabbi also deal with, how to meet different people's needs and give them different paths to growth, um, knowing that they're coming from such different places. Uh, yeah, meet them where they are is, is um, I don't know if it's officially a slogan of our synagogue, but it is definitely our, our modus operandi of, of how we behave. You know, and Rabbi, we should have begun this way, um, but I, I, I do want to say as we close that I don't know if I have ever felt, maybe a few times, um, but of the most powerful moments in my life, in my religious life, when I felt like this is what God wants, this is what Judaism is supposed to be, a number of them have happened at camp. Sitting in the Chater Ochel, that's the dining hall, watching the camaraderie and then the singing and the casual inside jokes about the Torah and the everything, like that is what this religion should be. And so... You know, I think there is a measure of just creating creating those moments. And even if they happen once in a while, they can illuminate the rest. There is a, there's, there's a midrash that is quite bizarre, uh, um, that it likens the Torah to a princess that is hiding in a castle. And people um, circle the castle and every once in a while, the princess will peek her head out of a window, but you don't know which one, and will wink. And, and for the people, the Midrash says, who have seen the princess wink, um, they are content to circle the castle forever just to try to catch another glimpse. And I do think there's something in the creation of these plausibility structures, whether it's at camp or at shul, where if we can get there once, if we can, if someone can see the princess wink, then it will illuminate them. It will guide them. It will be something, even if they then don't necessarily transfer that 
to every day of the rest of their lives, um, it's still better than nothing. It still gives that blueprint, that, that book of Deuteronomy to say, well, this is where you want to get to eventually, even if you might not be there all the time. And I, and I think that that is a very real thing that um, we can do and that we we do well, as much as we're talking about all the ways that we need to do better, which are very true and be intentional in it. I think that our institutions can and do give us those moments. I, I certainly think you're right. And I, I appreciate the kind words of, about camp. And, and I think that that is certainly the hope, right? That we can build enough of those moments and, and, ex, and give enough of those experiences where people feel like, I want to seek out ways to feel like this more often. Uh, and I want to seek out ways to feel this connected to my, to my fellow Jews, to the world, to the way that uh, I imagine God to be, wh whatever that is. And, you know, I think it does come back to something you were saying, Ethan, and, and connects very nicely to the beginning of our Parsha, right? Right? God says, I'm placing before you the blessing and the curse. And then at some point it just is on us to make the choice. And I think as we think about our communities that we are responsible for, that we are part of, and especially in this moment, but even not during a global pandemic, it really does come down to the choices that we make about the ways that we build sacred, impactful and transformative communities or don't. And, and the hope is that we can be a part of communities as rabbis, as lay people, that can build that kind of sacred, impactful community more often than not. And, and actually, on that verse, the Sfat Emet says why it says, I place before you Hayom, this day. And he says that means every day. Hayom, each day we have the choice to build these structures. Each day we have the choice between blessing and curse. Um, it's, it's a renewed thing. Every day, every moment we can choose that. And, and I think that is really the goal. The goal is that by creating a place where for these eight weeks, this, these are the choices that we're going to help you make, or we're going to show you why you should choose this. And then the hope is for the rest of the year, you will make those choices every day on your own. And, and the same goes for synagogues, right? By showing you these ways, by helping you, by providing you the options. You can choose to come to Minion. You can choose to be a part of the Tikkun Olam initiative. You can choose to engage in adult education. Hopefully then when you're not with the synagogue, you will make those choices as well. Rabbi, thank you as always for joining us. It is a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, we look forward to uh, hearing you again next week. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure as always, and uh, it's great to be back together with you. Well, thank you everyone for being with us. Uh, have a Shabbat Shalom, and we will see you all soon. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah.